Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey my friends, I want to let you all know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead, after being knocked down is now available for pre-order. I'll make sure the link is available in the show notes below. All right, my friends, let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. My friends, did you know that you were born influential? What happened? It's because over the years we were taught to suppress that influential power, to follow the rules, to wait your turn, to make, to not make waves. And as such, my guest today, the wonderful Zoe Chance and I talk about why influence really is our superpower and how you can become more influential to begin with. Influence is something that you may be really, really good at, while others of us may not really be that good at influence, although we are influencing ourselves and other people in some way, shape or form. That can be true. Influence doesn't work the way you think it does because you don't think the way you think. I want you to move past common misconceptions, such as the idea that asking for more will make people dislike you, Uh, even asking a question, for example, and understand why your go-to negotiation strategies are probably making you less influential. Have you ever found that to be the case with what I'm describing? Discover one important thing about influence, which is behavior more than anything else. You can learn to cultivate your charisma during this conversation. We'll learn more about that. Negotiate comfortably and creatively and spot manipulators before it is too late. How many of us have been on the receiving end of manipulation that has gone in a very, very nasty way? I'm putting up my hand and saying, yep, that has happened to me. And I've more than likely been on the actual forefront of that myself unfortunately, and I'm, I'm more than willing to admit that. My guest today, Zoe Chance, is a writer, she's a teacher, she's a researcher. 
She, she's a professor, climate philanthropist. She's obsessed with the topic of interpersonal influence and a science-based but fun and life-changing book, which is called Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change and Making Good Things Happen, which is available right now. You can go and get a copy of that. Link will be in the show notes below once again. She earned her doctorate from Harvard and she now teaches the most popular course at the Yale School of Management, which is Mastering Influence and Persuasion. Her research has been published in top academic journals and covered in global media outlets she speaks on television and around the world and her framework for behavioral change is the foundation for Google's global food policy, believe it or not. Before joining Academia, Zoe managed a $200 million segment of, of the Barbie brand. She helped out with the political campaigns and worked in less glamorous influence jobs like door-to-door sales and telemarketing. And like I said, she has a brilliant new book, Influence is a superpower. Go and get a copy of that. I highly recommend that you do. I actually got three copies of the book, uh, which I'm still waiting for all three to arrive. But nonetheless, I highly encourage you guys to go out there and and get a copy for yourself. Uh, Influence yourself, that is, to go and get a copy. Or maybe this conversation might actually influence you in the right way to do something great for yourself and your development. So my friends, if you do get something from this conversation, then please share it around to all your friends and your family. Don't forget before you leave to leave a rating and review over an Apple podcast. Really do appreciate each and every one of you that has left a review. I hope that many more of you do as well. All right, my friends. Uh, Also, before we dive into the story box, I just want to let you all know that we are three months or just under, yeah, just not that long actually to the launch of my very first book, The Path of an Eagle. And I highly, highly encourage you all to go and get a copy of it right now, just around the corner, pretty much. Links will be in the show notes below for each and every one of you. If you are in the US, Australia, wherever you are, you can get a copy uh, and I've made it easy for you. Link will be in the show notes below. And I hope that you support uh, yourself and support the show. And I guess you're supporting me too by getting a copy of the book. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to learn more about why influence is a superpower as we journey into the story box today and listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Zoe Chance. Thank you, Jay. It's great to meet you. Great to meet you too. And and thank you so much for your time today and for joining me on the story box. I didn't mention in the intro just a moment ago that you did your doctorate from Harvard and you actually work you have a very popular course at Yale the school of management is that right that's right i teach the most popular course at Yale school of management it's called mastering influence and persuasion and rather than helping people be more knowledgeable i try to help people be more influential hence so the popularity people kind of want that you must be insanely busy uh um, how are you feeling right now you got a book out you got this course, you, you must like be under the, under the pump, right? You know, um, now that you ask, I'm wondering if the reason that I wrote the book the way that I did and I teach the course the way that I do in having learning to say no, be front and center, maybe it's just because I'm such a busy person and I kind of needed this advice myself. But a big part of the reason I needed to learn to say no is because I'm really 
curious and enthusiastic and there's so many things I get excited to work on and so many people I get excited to work with. I I want to get to being able to say no and how that affects your influence soon. But before I get to that, I wanted to ask you my official first question, which is what do what does success look like for you? I guess it changes from day to day and today is this period. So you and I are talking in July of 2022 and I'm in the United States and it's this period where my country feels really, really dark to a lot of us. And we've just had uh, another horrific mass shooting. We've had some really atrocious Supreme Court decisions coming down. And so um, with that background of life for those of us um, here in my immediate vicinity, I think that our bar for success has um, come down a lot. And like right now, my bar for success is that my family and my friends and the people that I care about are safe and healthy. And um, on days that there is less to hold me down, then my bar for success gets a lot higher. So I, I guess I'm more successful today than on those days where my aspirations are higher. Why do you think success for you has changed over time? Well, I have this real huge beef with the personal development industry. And I also love the personal development industry. And I've spent so much time, so much money as a participant. And the way that I write and the way that I teach is based on a lot of that learning and research and inspiration, in addition to the science behind it. Um, But I really see this whole industry as depending on us as the customers not feeling successful. Mm-hmm. So I think this, this beef that I have is why I wrestle with the idea of how do I define success and do I want to see success as something that's in the future and just barely out of reach for me and for other people? Or do I want to see success as something that we can be enjoying right now? So there's a sort of tension and I'm trying to lean toward the second way, like what are the ways in which I'm successful right now? Like getting to have this conversation with you right now, you know, you're excited to talk with me about my book in this moment. There's nothing that could be better and there's nowhere I'd rather it be. So absolutely. I feel successful. I think it's sort of like the personal development industry is like this two edged sword in a way. I mean, there's a lot of benefits to it and there's a lot of also negatives, depending on the kind of person you're actually listening to in that industry. I think there's this massive stigma as well that if you don't reach a certain level, then somehow you're not successful. And that can be damaging for a lot of people psychologically and and mentally as well. Like they don't realize that if you are constantly on this, this journey towards just achieving this one thing, like you've got to reach this and that. And if you don't, then somehow you're not successful. Like I've noticed that in, well, there goes my, my picture of my dog. <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I, it's like, 
if you're not successful, then you're not worth something in society. And, and I think that, that sort of needs to change. I think we need to sort of make people understand that, hey, today you you can be successful. Just number one, being alive. Number two, you are successful because you're breathing. And number three, like if you have family, friends, and you are working at least to some to some extent, you are successful in, in that capacity. That's the way I tend to look at it these days. Yeah. And it seems like it's so easy to be taking for granted whatever success we already have and focused on what we don't have yet. And I remember a conversation with someone who was bitter about not having a Nobel Prize. And <laughs> this was just hilarious because I'm so far from being someone who would ever have a Nobel Prize. Um, but I guess the the higher you rise, you're still just focused on what's ahead for so, so, so many of us. And as I teach influence and share these skills and science of how can we have more of what we want and how can we be more influential, I don't want to be like a diet guru that is holding up these unrealistic body images and saying, I want to help you, you know, get shredded. I want to help you get a six pack. I want to help you wear a size two. I want to help you appreciate where you are. And I want to help you think about what it would take to take a baby step in the direction that you want to go. And I want to help you also figure out how to have the vicarious satisfaction that comes from being happy about other people's successes rather than jealous of those, which is another thing that plagues us. Um, and I want to help you feel good about the ways in which you do have these great things happen and you don't feel ashamed yeah. when sometimes you're the one who's succeeding more than the other people around you. So there are a lot of complicated feelings about success, the achievement of it, the lack of it. And um, I think it helps that I do have this interest and background in personal development when I'm teaching people to be learning and understanding what it does take um, to, and I guess the, I sound like I'm a self-help guru. I'm not right. I'm a behavioral researcher. And so I, I appreciate the analytical and experimental and science side of this, but I really believe the best way is for us to look at both. I, I agree with what you said there. And what came to mind for me was, I guess, managing expectations. I think, think the personal development industry in many cases can give us this unrealistic expectation of what you could achieve. All you got to do is work your butt off to get it, so to speak. And there's this other sort of realistic expectation of what you can achieve today <laughs> if you just, you know, do X, Y, and Z. But how much does managing our expectations between the realistic and the unrealistic help with influence? What I believe is the most helpful thing we can do along these lines for both ourselves and for other people, especially when we get to have privileges of leadership, is to raise our hopes and lower our expectations yeah. and to help other people raise their hopes 
and lower their expectations. Because when we have high expectations, we can never be satisfied. But when our hopes are not high enough, we rarely do better than whatever it was that we hoped for. And we almost never do better than whatever it is that we asked for. So a lot of the practice that we do in influence is just, it's just asking and it's very simple. Um, but having big visions is so inspiring for us, so inspiring for other people. And it brings people on board to collaborate with us or fund us, help us out. Um, but at the same time, it's this delicate balance of not expecting the best case scenario to happen so that we're not disappointing ourselves and other people. What influenced you to study about influence? I guess it was feeling so uninfluential. Mm-hmm. When I was little, I was shy. I was a nerd. I was introverted and quiet. And my theory was that people <laughs> didn't listen to me. They spoke over me because my voice was the same frequency as the ambient sound of the universe. And that just gives you a <laughs> little sliver into how nerdy I was. Um, and so I really wanted to understand as an outsider, what is it that has people connect with each other and laugh and make friends and want to hang out together, do stuff together, work together. I then started doing some practice for fun and theater, which taught me to actually relate to people. And then I worked in sales and then I worked in marketing and um, finally got to have the opportunity to do some of that science and some of that research myself. When I came back to school after having been a Barbie brand manager, um, we had a rule in my house. My mom was a feminist and a hippie and her rule was actually, there were two, you can't sing advertising journals and jingles in the house and you can't play with Barbie dolls. And so I worked in marketing for Barbie. (laughs) Sorry, mom, you don't get to tell me what to do. And this is another area of influence that I'm really interested in is is reactance and people's resistance to our attempts to influence them because so often people are wanting to do exactly the opposite of what it is that we're trying to entice or persuade them to do. And it's like they have this inner two-year-old that's like, you're not the boss of me. So it helps if we can understand that aspect a little better too. I can understand the the people talking over you, so so to speak, and you don't actually feel like you're being heard at all. I mean, it's funny because sometimes I run this, and when I'm talking, it kind of feels like, um, yeah, I'm not influential enough to actually say anything. <laughs> so why am I actually here? I'm here just to ask the questions, right? But it's interesting, like what sort of gauges that level of influence for us? Is it just the childlike nature or is it more the fear surrounding that of what people are going to think of us and are we smart enough, that sort of thing? Yeah, a lot of us um, who feel like we don't belong for whatever reason tend to get self-conscious like I was. Um, and my family was poor and we but we lived in a relatively wealthy area. Um, So I was extra self-conscious about that kind of thing. But what you're mentioning or bringing up is 
the I'm not talking because I'm listening and listening can be so influential. Listening can be at least as powerful as talking. And when you are listening and when you're asking questions and follow-up questions that have people feeling heard and that you like them and that you're actually interested, they find you so interesting yourself and so persuasive and so influential. There's, I don't know if you know about research that Alison Wood Brooks and some of her colleagues at Harvard have done, but they study the power of conversation and mm. they find that we like people better when they ask us follow-up questions, but we really, really, sorry, better when we ask, they ask questions, but really, really, really a lot when they ask us follow-up questions. And that's in both professional situations and personal situations like speed dating, because that's how we know that somebody's actually interested in us. So the kind of questions we do ask does determine how influential we are in them actually speaking to us and, and listening to what we're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed it's actually happened to me three different times that I was offered a job having not answered any questions, but having been the person who asked all of the questions in the interview. And I thought after it wasn't on purpose. It's not like it was like this strategy that I had. Um, it was just my way of being. And then I ended up, no, I guess one of them was admission to a school and the other two were job offers. And I thought afterwards, like, oh my gosh, I'm such an idiot. Like they don't know anything about me. They know nothing about me. How did I let that happen? All of a sudden the interview was over, but it turned out that no, they thought that I was brilliant and fascinating because I was asking these questions about them. Wow. Every time that's happened to me, I get kicked out of the room. Maybe it's just a part of being in Australia compared to America. <laughs> like you don't you get if, kicked out of the room. If, if they, no, I was just being, I was just joking, not really kicked out, uh, but more like I'd never got the job because <laughs> uh, I think they thought that I was a know-it-all, so to speak, like the way that I was asking questions. Um, I wanted to Maybe understand. it depends what questions you ask. I think I was just I was just trying them. to get to know them. Yeah, I was trying to get to know them as people and I don't think they liked it. I think they just sort of got really? their back up. It's like, no, leave me alone. You're here for a job interview. I'm like, well, I might be ended up working with you. So I want to get to know you right now. And that's the sort of that's the sort of person that I am. Um, maybe that's one of the reasons why I didn't get a few jobs. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but yeah, thought I'd Ooh. well, let's are recommending this as an interviewing strategy. <laughs> But actually, to, to give some value right here um, on a concrete topic, there is a really great book that's called The New Leader's 100-Day Handbook, and it's written by an onboarding agency, some consultants. And there's one particular piece of it that I love, so we practice this in my class. And it's this idea that when you're interviewing for a job, the person on the other side of the table is only looking for three basic things. They are looking for strengths and motivation and fit. So your goal is to have a library of stories, also relevant for this podcast, a, a library of soundbite kind of stories that you can tell in say one to three minutes on concrete topics that speak to your strengths as they relate to the job, your motivation, 
as it relates to the job and your fit as it relates to the culture. And the cool thing about this is that you don't need to be guessing right which it is that they're looking for. So if they say, so Jay, tell me about your most recent job. You don't know which it is, strengths or motivation or fit, but they want to look for all of it. So you can go to any of it. If they say, um, tell me about your worst boss ever. Again, you don't know if strengths, motivation or fit, but you can bust out any of these stories. And I think both of us would have done better when we were interviewing for jobs if we had known this very specific, super helpful tool. So anyone listening, try it out. It works great. How vast is the topic of influence? Just so, because I'm very curious, like how deep does it actually go? Um, it's so vast that my colleagues at Yale tease me about it and they put it in square scare quotes sometimes. And they're like, oh yeah, she's the influence expert because it's, um, you know, encompassing all of sales, all of marketing, much of psychology and a lot of, uh, political science. So they're right. This is really, really broad. Um, but what I focus on specifically for the most part is interpersonal influence. So how we can nudge someone's thoughts or nudge someone's behavior when we're in a direct relationship with them, like a conversation or a one-to-one communications. Well, I do some behavioral economic stuff that is more arm's length also, but I believe that where I can best contribute and where we can each have the biggest impact for the amount of time that we invest is in um, becoming more influential with the specific people that we talk to. And to give some evidence for that, that anyone listening, you can perceive for yourself when you think about it, as you have risen in whatever field you're in, and as you look around and see other leaders who've been rising in this field, increasingly, they are recruited and rewarded for their interpersonal influence skills. So this has to do with pitches. It has to do with negotiating. It has to do with sales and investment kinds of conversations, public speaking. These are all interpersonal influence skills. And the people who excel at this are far better paid than the people who excel at the one-to-many kind of influence. I've read that in Fortune 500 companies in the US, the top paid person in the whole organization is the number one sales rep. Wow. Do you want to guess the second highest paid person? Uh, no. <laughs> <I'll> probably. <laughs> Please tell me. <laughs> it's, it's the number two sales rep. Do you want to guess the third highest paid person? Um, the number three CEO CEO <laughs> really, but so yeah, because what salespeople excel at is interpersonal influence and they specifically excel at handling resistance, which we were talking about earlier, like that, that inner two-year-old who's like, you're not the boss of me. This is their unique skill. And it's that ability that brings in business and opportunities for the whole organization and the success of the whole organization depends on this interpersonal ability. So the CEO is number three. 
is way down yeah. the list. I thought it'd be number one. Yeah, so would I. That is very interesting. Is that so? What if the CEO was actually a salesperson himself? Does that really matter much? Well, um, first of all, there are many CEOs who have come through the ranks of sales, and that's not a coincidence. Yeah. And there are many companies, at least big ones like the Fortune 500 ones, where they will have people on their leadership track go through rotations that include sales. They include operations and they include sales because they like everybody to have some ability in that. But while we're talking about this, there are a lot of people who believe that if they don't have the right personality, they're, and especially if they're not extroverted enough, they're not going to be successful as a leader or they wouldn't be successful in sales. Or a lot of people hate sales, so they just don't want any part of that, um, even if they might like to be more influential or be a leader. And there's nothing that says you need to be extroverted to be influential or charismatic or a great leader or great at sales. And it's just a misunderstanding that people have because when we think about charismatic individuals or great leaders or salespeople, the extroverts tends to pop into our head first, um, but it doesn't have to be that way at all. I was going to ask that, but yeah, funny you should bring it up right now. Does it also matter with, uh, I guess, male and female? Does that sort of determine how influential they are? Like are males more inclined to be influential or females? Does that really matter much? So sexism is definitely real. The patriarchy is definitely real. Um, the fact that these things are changing is also real and that that's um, bias and sexism are contextually based as well. So for example, for me as a professor in a business school, and then also as a professional speaker, I have advantage, my gender gives me advantages because there aren't as many women as there are men in these industries. And people are right now these days inclined to have more gender parity. Um, my daughter, who's 13, has heard of sexism and patriarchy, but she hasn't experienced anything that felt like that to her. Um, and in the milieu in which she and her classmates exist, I don't see any disadvantages to her being a girl. Um, she is influential. She's class president. She's a total goofball. She has bunches of friends. And, you know, she studies hard in school and she's just a really happy kid. Um, would she be as happy if she were a boy? I don't know. But in the United States, at least boys are doing worse in school and having a harder time compared to girls. So, uh, yes, there are gender differences in influence. Um, they're mostly not that clear cut and mostly people overestimate them. But since you're asking and a lot of listeners and especially women. So thank you for asking this as a man. Very few men actually ask about gender differences and almost all women ask about it. A um, <laughs> couple of gender differences that are robust. And so I think it's important and helpful to know about. One of them is that one of the biggest and most important gender differences in negotiation is that women are less likely to realize that they can negotiate than men are. And the magnitude of that difference is different in different studies. Um, but in some studies, 
the magnitude is three times. So men will be three times more likely to realize that they can negotiate and to then go ahead and negotiate. And these are, um, this is evidence that's found in lab experiments and evidence that's found in large field experiments. And one, so women who are listening, one of the things that we're more likely to do than men are is think that we're asking when we're just complaining. And then now a bunch of men on who are listening will be like, yes, I do that. Um, so now I'm coming across as a sexist. But where that idea comes from, that we give signals and then we expect other people to act on it, I think is really interesting. And um, this is the different ways that most generations of girls and boys have been socialized. So in general, and especially even more in the past than now, boys were socialized in groups and girls were socialized in pairs. So in a group, you have to learn to advocate for yourself. Competition is okay. There can be divisiveness and fights, and then you get, get along again and you can have a hierarchy. Somebody can have more influence than somebody else. There, Groups are more complicated. They're also more resilient. Um, they're, they can be more forgiving and they can build some more toughness as well. When you're in a pair, you are listening really carefully to that other person. You are paying attention to their signal and you have to have them liking you because otherwise you have no friends. <laughs> so, so girls get used to giving and receiving more subtle signals and communication than boys do. But then what ends up happening in dual multi-gender groups is that some people are giving subtler signals and hints and expecting other people essentially to read their mind. So we're talking about gender, but this is absolutely similar thing cross-culturally, where if you're raised in a culture that's indirect, then you're essentially expecting people to read your mind. And it really sucks if you're living or working in a culture that's more direct. How what about, would you say Australia is like, like general Aussie culture, more direct or indirect? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I guess some people are more direct, so to speak. Like we, we don't like beating around the bush. We just like getting straight to the point. Whereas some people I've noticed are a little bit more laid back and they're more likely to be indirect with certain things. It just depends on the topic as well and the kind of person you're dealing with. But yeah, generally speaking, more Aussies would be more, I think, direct. Is that the same with the United States? Yeah, I would say very, very similar. And also, like you said, um, depends on the topic. Like in some cultures or countries, you can ask somebody how much, like what their salary is. And yep. there's nothing awkward about that at all. But in the US, that's super awkward. In some countries, you might see somebody you haven't seen for a while and say like, oh, you're looking fat, right? <laughs> or tease them about it. Like, definitely you couldn't say that or anything like that in the States. Um, and they're micro cultures too. So if you here in the States, if you work in a nonprofit, norms are less direct than if you work, say, in banking and norms are more direct. I think we've got tall poppy syndrome here in, in Australia. So basically, if we talk about money, 
uh, politics, any which way, then it's more indirect. Like we don't enjoy that. <laughs> uh, I think we're more than likely just, you know, you have your own belief system, you make whatever money you want, just don't talk to me about it. Because uh, we're all with tall poppies, it's like you all got to go one way. No one can go outside of that. Um, so, yeah, that that is part of it. I know that the UK is very similar. I know in some states the, of um, of America, they're like that too, while others aren't, funny enough. It's just, yeah, it's a strange phenomenon, I guess, from my standpoint, um, looking yeah. at it and trying to understand it myself. <laughs> Me, I'm yeah. more of a, I'm happy to have conversations with anyone about anything. So I guess that would be more direct. Uh, is that any, that, that would inf- that would in, uh, impact my influence significantly, wouldn't it? If I am willing to have a conversation with people, anyone about anything, doesn't matter the differences of, of opinion. Yeah, for sure. And you also in your creation of the podcast, and I'm sure lots of other things that you do, um, you've had to get a lot of practice asking, and that's a specific area where in order to be influential, we just have to get used to being direct if we're not getting what we want and to potentially be more direct than we thought that we had to be. Um, can I ask you, cause how many episodes of this podcast have you done now? So many. Uh, so I've released Hundreds. 370 something, but I've actually done almost 800, 800, 900 interviews in the oh space of two years. Yeah. It's nuts. Oh my God. <laughs> so, That's insane. Yeah. Trying and to keep up with them all. It's been fun. <laughs> so how many requests do you think you've made in the process of these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of podcasts? Requests. I've made thousands to be honest with you. Uh, yeah. And the ones that have said yes would be in the hundreds. Um but yeah, generally speaking, these days it, it does get up there uh, and it's hard to say no to everyone. <laughs> yeah. I want to say yeah. I want to say yes to everyone. But the thing is like the ratio, I'm releasing three episodes a week and that's a lot of work plus doing a ton of the research. I do it all myself. So there's like there's a lot involved and I want to bring on as many people as I possibly can because... I believe that every story matters, but in saying that it is, I'm one person, it is hard to sort of manage. I'm not complaining in any sense of the word, right? But it is hard just to manage everything all at once. Um, And sadly, not every episode gets released in the time that I want it to. It eventually will. (laughs) I know that, but some just take a little bit longer than others. Yours won't for yeah, it won't. <laughs> That's my promise. But others may. So it's okay. hard. I'm happy whenever this conversation comes out. And I'm just happy right now having it with you. Um, but I'm so curious because obviously I'm deeply interested in this and you have a ton of experience. Is there advice that you could give to the listeners that you've learned about asking? And then can I, I want to ask you after about saying no. <laughs> Uh, I'm loving how you're turning this on me. Uh, 
When it comes to asking, I'm naturally curious. Like I've always been that way. And as a kid, I used to ask wild and outrageous questions. And my audience knows this. My grandfather used to say to me all the time, he's like, if you don't ask, you don't get. So part of me was like, as a kid, if I want to know something, doesn't matter how afraid I am, I'm going to ask it anyway. If I, if I don't ask it, then I'm guaranteed I'm not going to get a response. I'm not going to get an answer to my curious question. So I guess, and when I first started this, I was scared half to death of actually, number one, paying attention to people. Number two, the kind of questions that I was asking, I'm like, is that going to be interesting enough for my audience, let alone the guest, how they're going to respond? Like, I've got no idea. So I guess now I've just sort of, and finding my own style too, like not copying other people, uh, I've just sort of gone into it more vulnerably and just gone, look, I'm going to ask some questions here. If I can relate to my guest on a personal level, then I will share. And that just sort of helps navigate a conversation properly. And if some of the questions are weird, outrageous, they don't make any sense at all because that's happened so many times. And I'm trying to figure out the question in my head because I'm thinking a million miles an hour and trying to formulate all ideas and what have you, if that happens, then so be it. Like I'm at my most vulnerable state doing this and so is my guest. So I don't know if that helped answer your question at all. Yeah, I think that the, um, and yes, and I, it's just a question out of curiosity. Um, and I think that sense of genuine curiosity that you have seems like when I hear you and when I hear other interviewers, just following this path of um, asking curiosity-driven questions. As a listener, I'm always interested in that. And it sounds very different from an interview where somebody comes in and they've got this list of 10 to 25 questions and they just go down and go boom, 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 boom. And it didn't matter what the guest, how the guest responded um, to the earlier one or, or when people are trying to show that they're smart or, you know, they read your book or I don't know, they know so much about science or something. I'm curious also what, like we were talking in the before conversation about this whole book sharing with the world process, publicity and marketing. Um, and we were talking about pitches and you've done all of these pitches for this show. What, and I'm sure you've learned a ton of different things, but is there something specific you can think of that you know now about making a successful pitch that you didn't know when you first started? Big one is credibility, I've noticed. So when I first started and I was first pitching, I had no idea what I was doing. So I would just share what the, the podcast is about, why I wanted them on the show in the first place. And then you get to the numbers. Then you get to the people you've had on and initially, I didn't know this, but who you've had on builds your credibility as well as the numbers. So people tend to look at the numbers first and then who you've had on. But some people are different these days in they look at who you've had on, whether or not they know you. And then if they do know them on a personal level, they'll go to them and say, hey, how is this guy? Is he worth me being actually on, on his show? And I've had quite a few people actually do that. And they've come to me and said, Jay, uh, we've actually 
because you reached out, we reached out to our friend that you've actually had on the show. They said they had a great time. So we actually said yes, because they had a great time on your show. And I'm like, fantastic. <laughs> so I think the big one is me just being genuinely number one, curious and authentic to show up as I am. So as I'm showing up right now is how I am in real life. And also building that sense of credibility that people actually are willing to give their time to actually spend it with you. Like regardless of the numbers, the numbers are one thing, but are they actually going to get value for their time? Like, are they going to enjoy the conversation first and foremost, or is it just going to be like this, as you said, a list of questions that so they run off and just tick it off one by one. And it's just like, there's no challenge whatsoever. For me, I want to expand the thinking. I want to challenge them to some extent, get them thinking uh, by the kind of questions that I ask. And I don't actually have a list of questions on, on the side. All I have is the bio and um, the book, really. And then I just generally just jump into the conversation. I have my, my set questions the success one and my end one, which we'll get to no doubt, <laughs> but that's about it. I just tend to find as much as I can. I, I try and listen as much as I can, but yeah, I think I'm going off a little bit of a tangent again. I tend to do that as well, but going back to the beginning of your question. No, I think it's helpful. I think people want to hear exactly things like this. Like they like your show. How do you do the show? Right. How do you make it successful? How? So I think it's great. Well, it's only successful because people actually say yes to coming onto the show. And if they didn't say yes, then it wouldn't really be a show. It'd just be, <laughs> me, be a monologue. me doing a monologue every five seconds. <laughs> with I'm not like super experienced or anything like that. And I don't want this show to be about me because it's not. It's about my guest. And I want them to know that. I want them to feel that way. And I want my audience to know that this show is about them too, them listening. I'm just the one that's navigating everything. I'm the sort of like the driver, <laughs> so to speak. But I hope that people just join in and feel like they are part of the, the ride. Um, and they've got to strap themselves in because it's going to be bumpy sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I appreciate you actually asking me that, that question because it made me think too. And I, don't, and, I, and I don't get to talk about this too much. <laughs> but uh, I, I wanted to ask you as well, uh, how much time do we have left, Zoe? Because I want to be respectful of you and your time. Um, I have like 10 minutes if you want, if that's good. Fantastic. That's perfect timing. Um, I wanted to ask you about looks and how influential it is with beauty, looks, that sort of thing how much does that play into us making decisions and that sort of thing? Um, just you asking this question brings up this traumatic memory. And I feel oh, like Jerry, because yeah. we're friends now. And um, this was the very first time that I taught a class at Yale School of Management. I had been hired, but I hadn't started my official job. And I was guest speaking in another person's class. And the topic was branding yourself. And 
one of those pieces was research that I shared on how attractiveness makes us more or less influential. And my purpose in sharing this research was that to the degree that people do care and are influenced by how attractive they find other people, it's really, really important that attraction is so subjective. And for example, in one study that I think is really, really interesting, I guess it was a psychology class. They asked all of the students at the beginning of the class to rate on a scale of one to 10, hot or not, all of the other students in the class. And then before you knew anybody, and then at the end of the class, they had to do the same exercise again, hot or not, scale of one to 10. And there were people who, it's not that they went from a one to 10 from the beginning to the end of it, but that they had a four point difference where at the beginning they were super hot, but by the end, now that you got to know their personality, they were super not. Or at the beginning, they weren't very hot and they got totally hot by the end as people got to know each other personality wise. So the traumatic part was a bad decision that I made that I just thought was going to be funny. And I, I showed people two groups of photos and asked them hot or not. And one group of people was obviously hot. One group of people was obviously not. And these photos were the before and after photos from this reality show where people got not only <laughs> trainers and everything, but plastic surgery during the show. And I was like, oh, they're actually the same people. So yes, attractiveness matters, but it's malleable. And students were really stressed. It was near the end of the year. And a bunch of them had just broken up with their partners. A bunch of them didn't have jobs. And what somebody interpreted my session to mean is that I was telling them that they were not hot and they should get plastic surgery. And so they actually got a petition together and not knowing that I was going to be a professor the next year, they petitioned oh, no. the Dean of Yale School of Management to prevent Zoe Chance from ever coming back to speak. Um, fortunately, it didn't pan out. And so bringing it back to interpersonal influence, what I did, even though I felt horrible and sad was I reached out to the person who had started the petition and just asked that person out to coffee. And we talked about it and got to know each other a bit. And it was somebody who it, it was a man who had felt protective of his female friends and was just trying to be helpful and do a nice thing. And mm -hmm. he, after we had coffee and just realized that each other were just normal people trying to do a good job in the world. We ended up not becoming best, best friends, um, but we became social media friends and we're still connected on social media and like I've run into him again and everything is fine. So attractiveness, back to your question. It matters. It matters less than we think that it does. And it's more malleable than we think. And for any woman who's listening to this episode, I encourage you to check out this book that is called Seductress. It's by Betsy Priolo. And this book radically changed how I think of attractiveness, which is just, it's a more important issue for women than men generally taking up more brain space and stuff. And this is a history 
I think it's called the women subtitle is the women who ravished the world. And it's about some of the most powerful women in the world focusing on seductresses. And what it turns out is that it didn't matter how old they were. It didn't matter how attractive they were. It didn't matter how much they weighed or didn't weigh. And some of the very most famous and most influential and power, powerful seductresses have been essentially ugly ducklings from a purely physical perspective. So attraction is just less physical have than you, a lot of people imagine it to be. Have you read, um, I think it's Robert Greene, Seduction? The Art of Seduction? I've, you know, I'm sorry, Robert Greene, if you're listening. I read some bits of it and then I got a little bit bored, but should I go back to it? <laughs> you don't have to go back to it. I just like, I was fascinated by, because I, I spent a lot of time in in bookstores and I actually came across that book that you referenced. And then I wanted to cross-reference what Robert Greene was saying versus what that other author was saying as well. I didn't really get to great with it, <laughs> but I was fascinated with this level of attraction. And because as human beings, we look at celebrities and we place like the level of hotness or whatnot, we place a celebrity on them. And I've always wondered, you know, some like I may think they're not hot at all. Why in the world are we treating them as such? But the rest of the world thinks that. So is it more of a case of how they look? Is it more of a case of their personality versus what they actually do and their charisma and that sort of thing? So it's just always fascinated me and bringing it back to influence, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah, lots of things in here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and power can make people more attractive as well. And confidence can make people more attractive as well. And so for anyone who wants to be a bit more attractive than you already naturally are, the one of the simplest, simplest things that you can do is just practice eye contact and practice making eye contact with people as an exercise. Just when you're walking down the streets, if you make eye contact long enough to notice what color people's eyes are. As you're walking down the street, if you live in a place where people have different colors of eyes. Um, and of course, when you're talking to someone, you don't want to be a super creep and just hold their gaze like a serial killer. But um, when you're talking one on one or in a group, generally the time to take a breath, a whole breath and say your whole thing with your breath or to say one sentence is a long enough time. And then if you're flirting with somebody, the simple eye contact thing to do is to look back at them again. Um, and like after a conversation and then you turn back and people feel like <laughs> they feel that spark, right? I'm big on eye contact because as they say, like eyes are the windows of the soul, the soul of the, that person's character, that person's like personality type and who they really are. And, are they really engaged with you anyway? So yeah, and, and power, as you mentioned, is is big too, uh, which is another Robert Greene book. Um, yeah. That one I love, 48 Laws of Power. Yeah, 48 Laws of Power. That one. I love that it. That one's great. Um, but yeah, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Zoe. Thank you so much for 
for your time. Before I ask you my final question, where can people find you, uh, connect with you and get a copy of your book? You know, I'm really big on making it as easy as possible for people to take the next baby step of whatever it is you might want them to do. So to make it as easy as possible for you listeners to connect with me, just find me on LinkedIn. My name is Zoe Chance. And from there, it's easy to find anything else. So we can um, just reach out, connect, and you can message me if you want. Lots of other places, but we'll stick to that. I'll also just let listeners know that I really believe deeply in using our powers of influence in important and dramatic ways. And for me, what I'm focused on is the climate crisis. So half of my profits from this book are going to organizations fighting the climate crisis, like 350.org. So if you end up getting the book, um, you don't need to get three copies like Jay, but if you end up doing that, then you're part of that too. And thank you. Well, I'm happy to support that, honestly. Uh, That makes me feel a lot better. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but also you. supporting you too. So, I mean, I'm I'm grateful for your work and uh, everything you are doing in the world. It is amazing. So continue doing it, please. We all need it. Uh, and everyone listening, go and get a copy of her book. Get three copies like me um, just to show your support. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thank so you. This is my, my final question for you. It's my all-time favorite question. I love asking all my guests at the very end. It is a hypothetical one. But I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? I really want this film to show how I was able to spread love. That's ultimately what I'm here for. There's lots of professional stuff that I do, but um, professionally, spiritually, personally, that's my mission. So thank you for helping me do that in this conversation today. You're more than welcome. Perfect send off message. Zoe Chance, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your advice and your stories and your influence on my life right now. And for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Thank you again, Jay, my new friend. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the Storybox, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 